Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Take your Bible and join me tonight in the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1, and the second and third verse really do provide a nice uh, theme, uh, summation of what I believe the book of James is all about. One of the greatest books in uh, all of Scripture, such practical wisdom, as we will see in a moment. It is often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament but also the Amos of the New Testament because it has such a direct message as well. We'll discover that in five chapters and 108 verses, uh, there are 54 imperatives, 54 words of command, wherein James uh, directs uh, his uh, audience to do certain things, and he doesn't ask or suggest, but rather he commands. And so in verse 2 of chapter 1, my brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing, and I think here's the key phrase, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. Well, with that as a brief word of introduction, if you look on the very first page of your notes, a profile of this individual by the name of James, quickly, he's a half-brother of Jesus, based upon Matthew 13, 55. Uh, He was an unbeliever in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, the evidence is he believed that his brother was mad and at one time came with family uh, to take him back home. Uh, He was converted to Christ probably when Christ appeared to him specifically and individually in his risen body, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. He calls himself a humble servant of Jesus Christ. Paul says, though, he is not only the Lord's brother, he is a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. And this indeed leads us to find in the book of Acts that he certainly fulfilled a leadership assignment in the Jerusalem church. Presiding over the council meeting in Acts 15, he is also referred to as an apostle in Galatians 1.19, though I do not think that that designation there is noting uh, that he was one of the twelve, but rather that he was indeed now in a significant position of responsibility. And uh, furthermore, he is here, we see, the author of the letter that bears his name. I thought you'd find this interesting as a point of history. Church historians report that his knees were hard like that of a camel because of his constant kneeling in prayer. In fact, uh, some uh, fathers referred to him as uh, camel knees. And he died as a martyr, being stoned by order of Ananias the high priest in AD 62 or 63, actually pushed off a pinnacle of the temple, and then at the bottom he was stoned to death. If you look on page two, I again have given you a structural chart of the book with some uh, interesting information at the bottom. As I said a moment ago, Amos of the New Testament, Proverbs of the New Testament, 54 imperatives and 108 verses, earliest New Testament book with the possible exception of Galatians, though I would argue that the evidence would indicate that James probably is the earliest. Uh, it pictures the character and conduct of a mature believer. In fact, when we look at our outline study at the end, I am going to take one observation from each of the 12 paragraphs in the book of James. 
actually they're more like 15 or 16, but I summarize it in chapter 1. And you really get a wonderful portrait of a mature man or woman in what really would be uh, the kind of character that you would want in the leader of a church. I'm also going to argue that uh, the book of James itself possibly is made up of, of sermon abstracts that were actually preached by James in Jerusalem and then put in a written form. And if you look at the chart, you'll notice that there are 12 uh, crucial subjects that are related all to the issue of faith. Faith in trials, faith in temptations, faith in the Word of God, faith in prejudice, faith in works, faith in your tongue, faith in true wisdom, faith in worldliness, faith in playing God, faith in money, faith in patience, and faith and prayer. And you can also see that chapter 1 gives attention to being patient when tested. Uh, Chapter 2, practicing the truth. Chapter 3, power over your tongue. Chapter 4, be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. And chapter 5, being prayerful in troubles. And so again, the practical wisdom of James is just so very evident. And so you see at the very top of the page, James, the testing of a living faith, faith that works. And I think that indeed summarizes quite well what this particular book is all about. If you look at page 3 then, as we've done in each of our studies, the background material, the author. uh, The author of the book identifies himself as James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I argued earlier, he was probably the half-brother of Jesus and a leader in the church at Jerusalem. Now it's interesting to note, uh, four men in the New Testament have this same name. But the author of this letter could not have been the Apostle James, who was the first Apostle martyred in Acts chapter 12. The other two men named James had neither the stature nor the influence that the author of this letter has. And so the church has, from its very earliest days, argued that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was indeed the author of this book. I then give you some, again, information about him that I summarized a moment ago. I'll just note three things I did not at 3, 4, and 5. Paul, on his first uh, post-conversion visit to Jerusalem, specifically notes in Galatians 1.19, I went to see James. Uh, fourthly, Paul did the same on his last visit in Acts chapter 21. And interestingly, when Peter was rescued from prison, he told his friends to make sure that they also told James, which again is an indication of the prominence and the leadership that he had in the church at Jerusalem. What about the dating of the book? Well, some will date the book early in the 60s. However, I think there are indications that it was written before A.D. 50 and perhaps even in the mid or early 40s. In that context, uh, no more than 10 to 15 years after the actual life, uh, public life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would we argue for its early date? Well, number one, it is distinctively Jewish in nature. This suggests it was written when the church was still predominantly Jewish. In fact, alongside of Hebrews, uh, it is the most Jewish book, but yet it is very Jewish in terms of its practical wisdom. Secondly, it reflects a very simple church order. The officers of the church are called teachers and also elders. Thirdly, There's no reference whatsoever to any type of controversy with the Gentiles over whether or not they should be assimilated or allowed into the church. This, I think, is the strongest. The Greek term synagogue or synagogue, which means meeting place, is used to designate the meeting of the believers. In other words, the word church, ekklesia, that occurs 114 times in the New Testament, doesn't occur even once 
in the book of James. And so when James talks about the gathering of believers, he refers to it as a gathering at the synagogue, the assembly of believers, but uses that word rather than the word for church. And so if this early dating is correct, top of page four, this letter is the earliest of all the New Testament writings with the possible exception of Galatians. But if you put a gun to my head, uh, I'm going to argue that the earliest book is James with Galatians coming uh, shortly after it. Now, to whom did he write? The recipients. They're identified in chapter 1, verse 1, as the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And that, likewise, is an indication, in my judgment, of its Jewish nature. Now, some hold that the expression refers to Christians in general. But I believe the term 12 tribes here would more naturally apply specifically to Jewish Christians. Furthermore, a Jewish audience is more likely, given the obvious Jewish nature of the letter, several things I've already noted. Also, the recipients were clearly Christian based upon chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. And it has been plausibly suggested that these were believers from the early Jerusalem church, who following Stephen's death in Acts chapter 8 were scattered as far as Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, and Syrian uh, Antioch. But again, James would have been their pastor early. James perhaps had led many of them to Christ following the persecution where it says in Acts 8, 1, and the church was scattered abroad and they went everywhere uh, preaching and teaching the word. Perhaps James is maintaining contact uh, with these believers as they're scattered abroad. And so this is in part why he sits down and writes this letter to them. This would also account for James's references to trials and oppression, uh, his intimate knowledge of the readers and the authoritative nature of the letter. And as the leader of the Jerusalem church, James wrote as a pastor to both instruct and encourage his dispersed people in the face of the various difficulties and persecutions that they were now encountering. What about the theme of the book? Well, that's quite simple. It is practical, vital Christian faith, which manifests itself in the behavior of good works of those who profess to have faith. In other words, James does not believe that you're saved by faith plus works. James does believe, though, you're saved by a faith that does work. And James would never have separated in his mind the idea of having genuine, vital faith in Christ that would not be in some way connected with genuine, vital works on his behalf. He then puts in the context of a number of tests as it indeed demonstrates the genuineness and the liveliness of our faith. And indeed, as I said earlier, it is reminiscent of the wisdom literature, especially the book of Proverbs. Furthermore, and I'll talk about this a bit more in a chart that I've given you, the idea that James contradicts Paul's view of justification by faith is, in my judgment, without foundation. And it fails to account for differing perspectives and purposes for the two writers. In other words, we'll see later Martin Luther uh, called the epistle of James an epistle of straw. I think Luther made a bad call there. But Luther thought uh, that the emphasis in works was so great that it kind of obscured the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. However, I think Luther missed the fact that Paul was confronting a different group than was James. Furthermore, they used the word justification in a different sense, as I will show you in just a moment. In fact, if you would ask me, uh, James is a perfect outgrowth of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. 
Where Paul says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God beforehand ordained that we should walk in them. So if you like, Paul most of the time in his writings emphasizes Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. James, in complementing that, emphasizes what Paul wrote in 2.10, and he fleshes it out in a number of ways. I showed you a moment ago those 12 ways you could look at the test. D. Edmund Hebert, in his very, very fine commentary on James, says, well, we could really boil it down to nine. Faith tested by its response to trials and temptation, the Word of God and partiality, good works, self-control, worldliness, prayer, and how do you deal with an erring brother? And so, again, you can readily see just how practical and relevant the book of James would be to any and every generation of believers. As I said a moment ago, Luther called it a right strawy epistle. However, because of the oppressive Catholic content from which he was emerging, I believe Luther failed to see the beautiful balance between faith and works that the book actually clearly, I believe, affirms. Special features then, I've kind of said some of these, but I add a few new things here. Though quite similar to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, James is not simply a gathering of loose and unrelated moral teaching, so though it's like Proverbs in its wisdom, it is not like Proverbs in its structure. The book is written in an excellent Greek style. In fact, when I uh, was in seminary, and uh, I took uh, New Testament Greek, uh, the two books that we worked our way through. One was the book of Galatians, and the other was the book of James. Interestingly, it was not the epistles of John, but rather the book of James and the book of Galatians. And James is written in a very excellent Greek style. And if you even read it in English, it reads very much like a number of sermon summaries, all of which are related to the same theme of a genuine faith, that produces works. Furthermore, I think you'll find this interesting but not surprising. There are at least 26 allusions to the words of Jesus. Evidently, Big Brother had a significant impact on his little brother. The book is well suited for public reading and worship. And uh, it is remarkable in its large number of parallels with, surprise, no, the Sermon on the Mount. Furthermore, James, being a country boy from Galilee, also has numerous references to nature. As I said earlier, it is called both the Amos and the Proverbs of the New Testament. 108 verses, but for every two verses, there is a word of command and imperative. Now, what kind of areas receive special attention in James? Well, we've seen a number of them already. Wisdom, riches, the use of your tongue, uh, impartiality. Uh, by the way, just to, as an aside, uh, one of our uh, girls that works over at the house, uh, Emily, got an email from her mother this week of a church in Fresno, a church of 18,000, that now when you go into church, you have to flash uh, a card. And the card that you flash determines where you get to sit. And they have a like a Costco-looking kind of card for the members and tithers. And they get preferred seating down front, 
leather chairs. Now, first-time visitors get to sit right next to the orchestra in laid-back leather chairs. But the tithing members get down front. If you aren't a tithing member, though, and you've been coming for several weeks, you're up there in the bleachers in flat grandstand kind of seats. Furthermore, they have now built inside the auditorium skyboxes. And if you're a really serious giver, you get to have hors d'oeuvres and laid-back leather seats. And as the story said, I'm not making any of this up, uh, most of the time those up in the skyboxes pay, quote, precious little attention to what is going on in the auditorium, close quote. And, of course, they said, obviously, the theme for this church is membership has its privileges. And uh, the uh, pastor tried to explain why they do this. And to me, I just thought, James 2. James' son, if he were alive today, would come in there and slap you upside the head in Jesus' name, telling you, what in the rip are you doing? Now, don't give that idea to Brother Bill because... uh, well, I don't know. It might be interesting to see how many folks got to actually tithe in our church. It might be that the front pews are empty. I, I'm not saying that's true of any of you, but it would be interesting to see how that works out. If you're not a bona fide, documented tither, you don't get preferred seating. So at least they know uh, who gives and who doesn't. I guess, you know, at least that benefit comes out of it. Though, again, the whole thing smacks of unbelievable godlessness and worldliness seeping and sneaking. And I guess not sneaking nothing, just walking right in the front doors uh, of the church. Well, getting back to uh, what's more important, key words. The word brothers occurs 15 times. The word faith, 16 times. Key words, again, trials, temptation, perfect. Works occurs 10 times. Believe, which is the verbal form of faith three times. So the word faith or believe in one form or the other, the word pistis or pistuo occurs uh, 19 times. And so works are emphasized 10 times, but believing, that word appears 19 times. Now then on page 6, and I won't spend a long time on this, I actually uh, taught uh, a course on James many years ago, and so I did some extra research as I would for a seminary or college, and I came up with, uh, as I did my study, uh, at least nine different ways uh, that different scholars have tried to uh, identify the style and the structure of James, you'll notice that there are little stars by numbers 3, 5, and 6, which basically tell you what I think is going on in terms of it. I do think that Scroggy made a compelling argument that James is sermon abstracts, which James had preached at Jerusalem over these major issues. That then means number 5 related to that, that some of these sermons are expansions of some of the sayings of Jesus. And then number six, a unifying theme is that of a faith that is alive and tests that prove its reality. In other words, to quote D. Edmund Hebert, a saving faith is a living faith. And so I think if you put those three ideas together, you begin to approach quite well uh, what the book of James is all about. Uh, page 7, I gave you an outline that came from Warren Wiersbe's book, uh, Be Real, which I think is an excellent study. Actually, maybe Be Mature uh, is an excellent study of the book of James. And you can see how he outlines the five chapters around suffering, service, your speech, 
a separation from the things of this world as well as the second coming, an outline that I took from his book but adjusted and made it my own on page 8, uh, takes the same kind of, a, uh, of analysis but wraps it together in just a little bit different way and does it uh, also kind of in a directive. In other words, what is James telling me? That I need to be doing. Well, Danny Aiken, number one, he's telling you in chapter one, you need to be patient when you're tested. Why? Well, the first 11 verses tell you that you should rejoice in trials on the outside because, as we saw it a moment ago, it is going to produce endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. And secondly, James says to be patient when tested, you've got to also resist temptations on the inside. And remember, no man who says he's tempted is tempted of God. God doesn't tempt uh, anyone. And then James talks about, in terms of temptation, uh, uh, walking its way through uh, uh, the, the fact that the Word uh, needs to be followed by deeds. And if you go and look at the Word but walk away and don't change, you're, you're a foolish man. Then secondly, he says that uh, the marks of a mature Christian, he practices the truth. And in the first 13 verses, dealing with impartiality, oh no, faith and love always go together. And then that classic text in 14 through 26, faith and works. Always go together. So a mature man is patient when tested. Uh, he practices the truth. Thirdly, he has power over his tongue. And, of course, James talks about the fact in verse 6 of chapter 3, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Uh, the tongue is uh, so set among our members that it uh, defiles the whole body, sets on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire by hell. He says, uh, every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And then in chapter 4, 1 through 17, he talks about the fact that a mature man is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. 4-1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do not that come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members you lust and don't have? You murder, covet, and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And then you, don't, uh, you ask and don't receive because you ask for the wrong reason that you may spend it upon your pleasures. And then he talks about friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. And so a mature believer is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker, as I'll argue in a moment. He makes friends with the right God. And then number five, a mature believer is prayerful in times of trouble. And James addresses financial problems, personal problems, physical problems, and church problems, especially in the context of what you do with a sinning brother. And so on page 9, I've given you a chart that gives you the emphases uh, of the book. Chapter 1, trials. Chapter 2, prejudice. Chapter 3, speech. Chapter 4, conflicts. And chapter 5, at least the first part, money. And the chart at the bottom, I think, is rather interesting because it also shows you how the world, the flesh, and the devil respond to each of those areas. For example, when trials come, the world says you need to avoid them. The flesh says you need to indulge them. The devil says when trials come to your life, well, God hates you. God's not on your side. Uh, God is mad at you. Prejudice. The world says, favor those who can help you. The flesh says, love yourself. The devil says, well, God is withholding something from you. Speech. The world says, promote yourself. The flesh says, glorify yourself. The devil says, God has abandoned you. Conflicts. 
The world says, demand your rights. The flesh says, assert yourself. The devil says, you better defend yourself because God won't defend you. And then when it comes to money, the world says, grab all you can. The flesh says, serve yourself. And the devil says, you better watch out for number one because God will not provide for you. And so if you're teaching or preaching on it sometime, that might be something that would be a helpful teaching aid as well. I also included, just for your information, on page 10, uh, the parallels and possible allusions of James to the Sermon on the Mount. If you count them, there are 27 of them there. If you then look on page uh, 11, you'll also see references to nature in the book of James, and there are 28 of those there. And then to show you again that uh, much debated issue of uh, Paul and James, and does James contradict Paul? First of all, I gave you the texts that are usually trotted out by those who try to uh, argue that there is a contradiction. Paul says in Galatians 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Galatians 2.16, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. James, in contrast, says, though, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. So you say, what's going on here, Danny? Well, here's what I think is going on. Look at beneath Paul's writings. Paul is talking about justification before God. How is any man or woman justified before God? They are justified by faith. When you look at the doctrine of justification in the writings of Paul, it is an eternal position. And it is yours by simply believing in Christ. In contrast, James uses the word justification as it applies before men. And how is a man or a woman going to know that your faith is real and genuine? Answer, by your works, by your fruits, by their fruits, Jesus said, you will know them. And therefore, in James, he's looking at justification before men as a daily proof. And then finally, whereas Paul says justification is believing in Christ because it's before God, James says justification because it is before men is behaving like Christ. And again, James emphasizes 2.10 of Ephesians, whereas Paul, at least when he's dealing with the issue of justification, is giving attention to chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 9. The top of the page says it all. They're simply different by design. They have different opponents. Paul is dealing with Judaizers who say you must obey the law to be saved. James is dealing with people who evidently say, I'm saved by faith. Doesn't matter what I do. Remember, James really nails that in chapter 2, where he says, well, I got news for you. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. In other words, even a hell-bound demon has more sense than some of you. Because you say, I've got faith, and then you sit back and rest on your laurels. At least the demons shake in their faith because they know who God is and what God expects. And so James, in essence, says, why, what you have is nothing less than demon faith. And I assure you of this, boys and girls, demon faith is not saving faith. 
It helps us understand that mere intellectual assent to a proposition will not save you. It is commitment of your life to Christ. It is commitment of who you are to who he is, not just some type of intellectual assent to some type of theological issue. There is intellectual content, but that saving faith is only that is clearly contrary to what you find in the scriptures. Now, very quickly on page 13. Several years ago, I was actually flying on an airplane somewhere, and I was working through issues of leadership. And I don't know why. Maybe I was totally wrong-headed in this, but I said, you know, James has so much wisdom. And you know, if you lived out daily the kind of things you find in James, there's no debate. You would be a very mature believer. And then I made what I think is a reasonable uh, extrapolation. I said, and what does God want in terms of his leaders but very mature men and women? And so I developed, just sitting there going paragraph by paragraph, I went through and I said, well, what is this text telling me a mature man or woman looks like? And I came up with 12 observations from the five chapters as to what a godly Christian leader or a godly mature man would look like or what he or she would do. I'm just going to note them for you very quickly. First of all, a godly Christian leader will ask God for what they need. And I think the key verse there is verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom has been called knowledge applied, but I like to define wisdom as the ability to see things from God's perspective and then act accordingly. That's my definition of wisdom. It is the ability to see things like God sees them and then to act or respond accordingly. And I don't think anything is more necessary for a successful uh, uh, spiritual leader than that he or she be a man or woman possessed of wisdom. And so a godly leader will, first of all, ask God for what they need. They will ask God for wisdom. Secondly, godly leaders also know that actions speak louder than our words. Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, being self-deceived. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man. He goes over and looks at his normal, natural face in the mirror. And adding parenthetically, he sees he needs a shave. He sees he's got dirt on his face. He sees he needs to comb his hair. So he observes himself, and he sees that he's got things he needs to take care of. But he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into, and here's a beautiful uh, uh, image for the Bible, He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Godly leaders know that people watch you. People talk about you. People form an opinion of you. People, indeed, whether you like or not, give a value judgment of just who you are and what you're like. You have a reputation. It goes where you go. It goes where you don't go. It comes before you. It goes after you. It's with you. You may be able to adjust it, and sometimes you may adjust it down instead of up. 
The fact of the matter is, if you step up into a position of leadership, people watch you with an eagle eye. And a good, godly leader will understand that my actions will speak louder than my words. Number three, godly leaders also help the less fortunate. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. They help the less fortunate. A good question for all of us in ministry to ask ourselves is this. How do I treat people who cannot further my agenda? How do I treat that man or that woman that I know in advance cannot do anything to help me? They don't have money. They don't have position. They don't have prestige. They don't have influence. How do I treat people who do not have a prayer to help me? People watch. And people are impressed when you reach down and help those less fortunate, help those who are hurting, help those who cannot help you in any form or fashion when it comes to your agenda. Godly leaders help the less fortunate. Number four, godly leaders never show favoritism. This is one of my favorite texts in all the Bible. It makes me want to cry on the one hand and laugh on the other. My brethren... Don't you have uh, and hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and you show partiality? Well, I'll give you a hypothetical. You're back there one day as an usher, and there comes in your assembly a man with gold rings. Literally, in the Greek, it is gold fingers. He is gold-fingered. He's got so much gold on his fingers, it's like he's a gold-fingered man. So he comes in. And, man, he is decked out. I mean, he's in a shaft, uh, uh, I have remarks, one of those fancy suits, you know, of all those Jewish guys make. And, you know, you just dream about one, but you know you're never going to own one. And so he comes in like that, and, man, he is just, he is decked to the nines. And then right beside him comes in this poor fella, and, man, he is ragtag. I mean, he is filthy. Well, he might even smell bad. So what do you do? Verse 3, you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, oh, come here. Sit in our leathered, laid-back chairs. Uh, you don't even need a Costco card. We'll put you down front with the, uh, with the big folks anyway. And uh, you sit down here, and you say to the poor man, um, well, i tell you what, um, you can sit over here on the floor. Or better yet, why don't you just sit back there in the back? Are, are, are you really sure you're looking and you found the right church? I mean, there's another church on down the street. You say, that would, oh, I've known it to happen. Because I've heard this too, it just makes me want to throw up. They, they're not our kind. What the heck does that mean? They're not our kind. They, they, they don't fit here. What does that mean? You know, I sometimes wonder, I, don't, I can't prove this. It does say in Hebrews that we have sometimes uh, entertained angels unaware. I just wonder sometimes if God doesn't send an angel. I really believe this. Maybe dressed up like that just to see what you and I do. Just to see how we respond. I remember Chuck Swindoll telling the story years ago. He was preaching one Sunday, and suddenly a guy stepped into the back, and he was in cutoffs, a tank top, hair down to here, and no shoes. Just looking around, and all of a sudden, he, he later found out this boy had never, ever, 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 ever been in a church in his entire life. We showed up this morning. And he starts walking down the aisle, just walking down the aisle. And, they, you know, of course, everybody, as they see him, are just, you know, where in the rip are the ushers when you need them? What are these guys doing? They're back there drinking coffee, playing Judas, counting the money. You know, what are they doing? He comes all the way down, 
and gets over and sits. I can't do it because my legs are bad, but gets in the Indian position and sits down right there on the floor and just sits and starts staring at him. Suddenly, the patriarch of the church gets up. He's back about halfway and he starts down the aisle. And of course, everybody's like, oh, my soul. Uh, this is not going to be pretty. He's going to come down there and grab him by the ear or do something to him. That old man in his 70s comes down and in that very frail, feeble way gets himself down on that floor and tries to cross his legs and he sits right beside that young man off the street for the entire service. Swindoll later shares the story that uh, that young man eventually came to Christ was called into the ministry, and today is a wonderful, godly, Bible-teaching pastor. And just think what happened and what could have happened had that patriarch in the church not done what he did when that young... He didn't know any better. Heck, that's what you do out there in California. In fact, I hear they do worse than that. But anyway, you know, you just kind of come down and sit. Maybe I'm surprised you didn't lay out and, you know, take a nap. And so, again, the text just reminds us you don't show favoritism. You treat everybody the same, realizing in the heart they need Jesus just like everybody else needs Jesus. Number five, they have a balance of faith and works. You know the text very well. Verse 14 of chapter 2, what does it profit, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but he does not have works, can that kind of faith save him? I'll give you an example. Here comes a brother or sister. They're naked. They have no food. And one of you says to them, depart in peace. Be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? And the answer is, it doesn't profit a blooming thing. Thus, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. And so James is just simply telling us that what we say and what we do, our belief and our behavior need to match up, or we are inauthentic and we lose the right to have the ear or the eye of the world. And therefore, we have a balance. Number six, they control their tongue. I read that phrase a moment ago. I'll read it again. It's just so hilarious. No man can tame the tongue. Oh, we can tame reptiles, and we can, can, uh, we can tame creatures of the sea, and we can tame beasts, and we can tame birds. But you know what? No man can tame that tongue. It is an unruly evil. It is full of deadly poison. With it, we bless God, our Father, and with it, we curse men who've been made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names of words will never hurt me is not true. It is not true. And words are indeed powerful, powerful weapons. And James says very simply, you can control your tongue. You can control the rest of you, too. Number seven, they're peacemakers, not troublemakers. In chapter 13, chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, you have a beautiful contrast between if you have devil faith in chapter 2, you now have devil wisdom in chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Chapter 3, verse 13. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness that flows out of wisdom, but... If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't you boast and don't you lie against the truth either. That wisdom does not descend from above. It is earthly, sensual. It is demonic. But verse 17, the wisdom that is from above is pure and peaceable, 
gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Yes, godly leaders are peacemakers, not troublemakers. You know, some people will fight at the drop of a hat. And they're also willing to drop the hat. Such people should never be in leadership, and they certainly ought not to be in ministry either. Number eight, godly leaders make friends with the right God. I'll just quote what you see there in verse four. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so you've got to decide, who am I going to make friends with when it comes to my God? And for some people, it is themselves. That's why there's so much fighting going on in four, one through three. And that's why in 7 through 10, he talks about the admirable quality of humility. And so you've got to decide, who's going to be God in my life? Is it going to be the living God or is it going to be me? And you have to make friends with the right God. Number nine, you submit to God and are humble in in spirit. It's very interesting to note that in verses 7 through 10, 10 of the 54 imperatives in James show up. Look at it with me. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Godly leaders are submissive to God. And they are humble in spirit. Number 10. Godly leaders do not presume concerning God's will. Again, verses 13 and following are kind of funny. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, why, we'll go to such and such a city. We'll spend a year there. We'll buy and sell and we'll make some money. He almost wants to say, as Danny Aiken would, you idiot. You do not know what will happen tomorrow. Why, let's just think about it for a moment. What is your life? I'll tell you what your life is like. It's a vapor. It appears for a little time, and then it vanishes away. I suspect that this is where the phrase, here today, gone tomorrow, comes from. I like to do this every time I talk about this text. I want to ask you a question. How many of you in this room right now know who the richest man in the world was 200 years ago? Would you raise your hand and tell me who that was? The richest man in the world 200 years ago. So we're going back, you know, 1800. Who was the richest man in the world in the year 1800? None of you know, do you? Guess what? I don't either. I don't have a clue. And you know why I don't know? And you know why you don't know? Because today, guess what? Nobody cares. Nobody gives a rip who he is. Now, people cared a lot 200 years ago, I bet. And I suspect, you know, 200 years from now, if Jesus has not come back, folks won't pay a whole lot of attention to Bill Gates. He'll just be a name in history. That only comes up every now and then in a dusty old history textbook. But you know who will care 200 years from now about you? God. God. He's the only one. And therefore, who do you think you are? Who do I think that I am? That I could presume upon his will for my life when I need to realize of all the entities and all of creation Only he cares for me and loves me in that kind of very eternal, specific kind of a way. Number 11. 
Godly leaders put wealth in proper perspective. Verse 1, again, is kind of funny of chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver, they're corroded. Their corrosion will be what? A witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures when in the last days. Verse 5, he calls it a day of slaughter. You say, well, my uh, riches are not corrupted today. They will be then. When you stand before God in the judgment, your riches won't mean a thing. You can be a multi, multi, multi trillionaire. And it won't matter for anything when you stand before the living God. So you don't deny the value of wealth. You don't reject the fact that God in his goodness and grace has blessed us with wealth. But you sure make sure that you always keep it in proper perspective. And then finally, godly leaders seek the Lord in prayer when troubles come. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray. Why? Verse 15, for the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise us up. And if he has committed sin, they will be forgiven. Uh, I'm a big uh, Dirty Harry fan. I know there probably is some type of theological justification for my love for Dirty Harry. Uh, I can't figure it out, but I'm sure there must be somewhere. And uh, I like some of his quotes. I think he's a very quotable individual. And, of course, I know the one that everybody knows the best is, you know, make my day. Yes, that's all right. I think his best one, though, in terms of wisdom is where he says, a man's got to know his limitations. Well, you know what? That's good advice. A man has got to know his limitations. And you know what? I don't care how gifted you are, how smart you are, how talented you are. There's some things you can't do. There's some situations you can't fix. And so what do you do when you come up against the limitations of your own finiteness? Well, a godly person will seek the Lord in prayer, realizing that's where he should have been all along to begin with. By the way, have we come full circle? Because what did it say in chapter 1, verse 5? If any of you lacks wisdom, what does he need to do? Let him ask of God. That's prayer, isn't it? So James begins with prayer. And James ends with prayer. You need wisdom, you pray. You've got troubles, you pray. In fact, James would probably say all the way through, you just keep praying. And as you pray, God will indeed bring these characteristics about in your life. And as he does so, you will become a mature believer. And you then will be the kind of person God can entrust with the leadership of his church, of his ministries, and of his people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wisdom of James. What a great book it is. Lord, may we take the things we've learned this evening, put them to practice in our own lives, seeking you when it comes to wisdom, seeking you in times of trial and difficulty, seeking you in terms of our own destiny, seeking you in terms of the finances we have, seeking you, seeking you, seeking you, that we might know you, love you, and live like you, showing the world what a godly, mature Christ follower looks like. This is our prayer. We make it in the wonderful name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. 
If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.